0: So we're in uh, 2 Timothy tonight, the third chapter. We're going to start the third chapter, go through about nine verses tonight. Sometimes in these books, it's hard. In paragraphs, you can't get through, you kind of get stuck halfway in between something. So maybe you you take a few verses too short instead of try to go too long and all that goes with that. But we'll be in 2 Timothy 3. We probably have about four more weeks of 2 Timothy. Um, We'll be doing some other things after that wrapping the year up, but also as we get towards the end of May and we don't have growth during June and July, remember that. So uh, about the time we finish up everything here, we'll be kind of in the middle of April. We'll have a few weeks left, and I want to do some stuff here and all that. So it's, it'll, we'll do a few things, but it'll be, it goes by pretty quick. I think we just started First Timothy back um, in September. Chapter 3 says this, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Almost inevitably, in America today, when they come to the New Testament and people read the term last days they almost always think of the second coming of Christ there are preachers who preach that there are entire movements who teach that they think anytime in the new testament that term last days show up that that is what it pertains to and they are incorrect because in the new testament coming from the old testament understanding the last days unless they're talking specifically in context of the second coming of Christ, in its mission with the second coming of Christ in mind, the last days is the period between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead when Christ comes again. We live in the last days. That's how they understood it. That's how they taught it. That's how the early church understood it. That's how the early church fathers understood it. That's how most people have always understood it. We get confused because we think, in the, last, in the second coming of Christ, and we, we, we talk, talk about that in terms of eschatology, the end, the last days, and so there's a lot of confusion over that. So let me always encourage you something. That's really, I say this to you all the time. Don't let your theology mess up what the Bible says. <laughs> you don't interpret Scripture based on your theology. Your theology is always subject to Scripture. You just, in the book of Hebrews, and I preached in that in the first Sunday in January, in these last days, and I told you then, he was talking about time of Christ, you know, time I mean after Christ, up to now. That's how they understood it. And they understood it this way because, first of all, when they referred to their scriptures, which is the Old Testament, they looked to the day of the Lord as this coming of his kingdom with the Messiah. The Messiah came, that's Jesus. So they understood everything about those last days or that day of the Lord as referencing Jesus. In the Old Testament, they didn't have Messiah coming at the first and then a second appearance. They didn't have that. They didn't have a concept of the first and second advent of Jesus. It is when Jesus came and Jesus began to teach that that they began to understand that. They also lived back then, just like we do today, with the fervent expectation that Christ was going to come again pretty soon. In fact, the early, early on, they all thought he was going to come in a very short period of time. Sometimes we can even glean that from Paul. Then as time went on and Christians started to die, and some of them were facing death, they realized that they would not be alive when Christ would come again. So the term last days, especially to Paul, now Paul's writing. You know, he's not far from death. His last days on earth are coming. So absolutely, in these last days, he is understanding it as the church age. The era of the church is the same as the last days. And if your understanding is different than that, you need to really go back and start reading the New Testament and understanding it better. Because you're wrong, man. And I'm sorry, I don't like to tell people when their belief system is wrong. You're wrong. Because that's what this means. It has to mean that. Because the grammar means that, the context means that, and the arguments means that. Look what it says, what's going to happen in the last days. Difficult times will come. And that's where people go, well, that's got to be referring to the tribulation. Really? Paul is about to be beheaded for being a follower of Christ. About the time he's beheaded for being a follower of Christ... Peter's going to be crucified. You know what those sound like? Difficult times. That's a pretty tough time. In fact, tell me any part, once Paul became a follower of Jesus, when was it not difficult for Paul? When did he not have a hard time? I mean... I, Halfway through his ministry, he talks about all the times he'd been beaten. You know, they talk about the time they stoned him to death, left him for dead, and he gets up because they didn't finish the job off. You know, he got ran out of a place he went. Sunday, I'm preaching about Thomas, and I'm reading stuff. You know, you know, the, the death of the apostles. You know, it's not in scripture other than James, but you know, church history and traditions, and you know, <laughs> these guys suffered. The book of Revelation Revelation is set during the reign of Domitian. Domitian brutalized Christians. In fact, you know the only group of people who've really escaped hard times for their faith for an extended period of time in Christian history? Americans. About the only ones who really have for a long period of time. Go in the world today, throughout the world. Western civilization, okay. Even in, the, even in the middle of ages when the Reformation came, they still killed each other. Catholics killed Protestants. Protestants killed Catholics. Calvin, Calvin thought nothing of killing heretics, what he deemed a heretic. He puts you to death just like, you know, my wife used to check cockroaches out the back door, man, as fast as they could. I mean, it's just the way, it's just the way it is. You go, to, you go throughout the world today. Christians are persecuted. They're put to death. They make lists of the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. United Nations, a few years back, said the single most persecuted group of people in the world in terms of persecution by identifying one single factor are Christians. So I don't know. It just sounds to me like difficult times have always come. So it's more than surrounding the events of the second coming of Christ. You've got to expand your understanding of truth so that you match up and align with what Paul and the other guys write. Notice what he says, and he's gonna give like 19 lists, a, a, a list of 19 things, verse two. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Now, that list is 18 and 19. Some of them, it depends on how your version c- combines them. Lists, especially with Paul, are always interesting. We always like to go through, you know, sometimes the people break it down, you know, word by word. Really, these lists are, are kind of taken as a whole as aggregate. They're not meant to be exhaustive but comprehensive. But some things stand out. Let me point it out. The first two things mentioned in the list is lovers of self and lovers of money. The last two things mentioned is lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they kind of it's a literary device which allows them to kind of bracket the things that are in there and everything else in there kind of spins off this. So I just want to focus a little bit in Paul's day. And to think about, he's describing, and and it's kind of tough to say, is he describing the world and the culture, or is he describing the church? Or is it possible? He's describing both. Remember, he writes about false teachers. That hits hard in the first book of Timothy. still writing about it in the second book. We've talked about that numerous times. So in many ways, He is describing how the false teachers who reflect the world are, and what he's describing can easily filter its way into the life of the church. They are lovers of self and lovers of money. Now, the the word "lover," love, in these words, comes from the Greek word "phileo," which means the affection for. But means it's just self; it is self-focused. And part of that self-focus is on the focus of material p- things. So he talks about that. They, they, they are, at their root, people who promote themselves. And so you know, I think in the world, it's, it's pretty safe to say that you know, the, the idea of the promoting of self, the loving of self, or being focused on self is pretty common. Even people who are altruistic, people who do things for other folks, oftentimes there's a rationale or reason behind it that still has to do with self, but we normally just tend to put ourselves, to promote ourselves, to make ourselves first in our lives. That is the tendency of which we find our life. And the false teachers were the same way. If you look back historically at false teachers, Going all the way back to the early church with people like Marcion the Heretic, going through Joseph Smith with Mormonism, you know, just, just, you just go on even today. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, we had Reverend Moon, the Moonies. You had David Koresh. Um, you have all these people who are prosperity preachers today. They all love themselves deeply. I mean, it's, it's, it's not hard, hard to see. Now, we all love ourselves to some degree. I get that. I mean, you know, I mean, you're know, you talking to a guy who has a healthy ego, okay? So I get that to some degree. It wasn't funny, but you're know, laughing, okay? You Show, know, okay. But you know, I guess it's better than funny than tragic. But, but you know, we all. T- but it's characteristic of self-focus. And here's what happens if you're not careful in the church. A lot of churches, their primary emphasis is. What does the church do for me? What does the church do for me? There was someone at our church one time, they've gone long gone, who once came up to me while I was meeting with Joe, which was a mistake to bother me when I'm meeting with Joe. Not anybody, but we're having, a, we're having our Monday meeting that we have where we decide the future and fate of everything that exists. And they started talking to me about what I was doing to their worship service. <clears throat> Did I get red? <laughs> yeah, red it's that plow. <laughs> I said, it's your worship service. <laughs> and so the conversation began. It wasn't a conversation. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard, my classroom, my group bought that. Why are, that, why are the youth using what we bought my row, my blah 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 la di da 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 da. And those churches all have one great thing in common: where that prevails, they're all dying. They're dying because you can't have that attitude. One of the first things that I ever said when I walked through the doors of this church and began to preach, and I haven't said it in a long time because we really don't have to, because y'all are being, y'all are that way, and really y'all are fantastic. Yeah. It's not about you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're good to go. You're going to heaven. It's not about you. Now, as your pastor, I want to. if you're sick, I want to help you. If you're struggling, we want to help you. Absolutely. That that's goes with that. If I have to qualify that, there's something wrong with the way you're processing information. What I'm saying to you is the focus and function of this church is not about you. It's about God and people that don't, don't know God. And that's what it's about. It's always what it's about. And I say this because it's easy. And it's easy for pa- it, it, Nobody gets caught up in a church of loving what they love more than pastors. We're the, we're the most guilty people of this of all. Because we want to build it around all the things we like. And one of the hardest things for me to do is to do things or to have the church do things that I don't like. Because I have the power to say yes or no to whether we do it, and it's hard. So I understand that, but when you build your faith or a church builds itself around the people that are already existing, you become a lover of self. Paul says that'll bring upon you hard, hard times. Lovers of money is the same thing I mean, in terms of the word love. And that's, and this doesn't have to just be money. It can be stuff. It can be a lot of things. I saw something about Shaquille O'Neal. And Sha- Shaquille O'Neal is a funny guy. He, I remember when he was a high schooler. and played high school ball in San Antonio. And if you don't know who he is, he's a great basketball He was a former basketball player. Great. And he talked about the first time he got money. He never had money. So he got, he got his first check. And, he's, and he talked about all the things he bought with it. And his comment was he made it was a twenty dollar, twenty million dollars was what he was getting, but he didn't realize like almost 10 million were taken out in taxes. So he spent 20 million like he had it when he only had 10. And he talked about all the stuff he bought, and he said, Boy, that was really stupid. I didn't need any of that. I just had the money to buy that. And I think a lot of times we find ourselves there. We just love the stuff we want. No, there's nothing wrong with having a nice house, nice car. I get all that stuff. Because I do the same thing. But the quest for money, remember, he's talking about the false teachers. They get caught up in loving stuff. That is so easy to do in church. And, you know, one of the commentators I was reading kind of expanded this a little bit more than I would have. But I just think about, you know, how we do things here. Are we doing things in such a way that exhibit a love for self and a love for money? I mean, as as the pastors, I look at how we do things as a church. And, man, I really hope that we don't convey the message to the world around us. That's what we do. It's okay to be comfortable. Man, I want the air conditioning on, as you probably will know, on Sundays when it's 35 degrees outside and the air conditioning's on. Because it gets hot here and I'm up here on the lights. And I'm loving myself at that moment, not you. <laughs> we want the best, obviously, yeah, and it's Okay. But we have to to be so careful with what we do. He ends up talking about the fact that they love pleasure, which goes with loving money, and then they don't love God, which goes with loving self. So it brackets, they love themselves, they don't love God. They love money, and they do love pleasure. And it brackets that off, all the stuff in between. It's pretty, pretty obvious. It, it, it doesn't, it, there's nothing fancy in the Greek about it. You know, boastful, arrogant, you know, their gossip. Oh man, gossip. We're, I don't think we're as bad as we used to be about gossiping. or oh, They just don't do it much in front of me. But the worst place to find gossip, the, the gossip, you wanted to hear the latest gossip, go to a small prayer group and listen to the gossip. We're praying for these people. Here's why we're praying for them. And Then they list all their sins. And so it's kind of what happens. So that's why we don't ever want you to list what's going on. We Don't ever, don't ever tell us what's going on. Just, we got the first name. God knows what's going on. We don't. Now notice what it says in verse 4. They're all this rather than lovers of God. Notice verse 5. They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power avoid such people as these." Now, what's he talking about? It's this, they're religious and they look so religious, but they lack the power that goes with a life of faith. They pretend to be godly, but they're not godly. Their life lacks the power of godly moral living. So there there tends to be a lack of morality among these false teachers. That's kind of the point that he's getting across. So here's the thing everything looks religious, and it looks good, but it's not. So I was talking to a friend of mine from uh, high school yesterday on the phone, and uh, we were just talking about another friend, an issue, but this friend of mine was bringing up her daughter, you know, and her daughter and another Christian friend of hers, both daughters both do the same thing. They both raised as Christians, but they have this mindset, well, that God's just loving, and he lets everybody in. To have. Everybody, God's loving, and if you're religious, you should be okay. And that's kind of the world's mindset. I talk about that a lot when I talk about culture. And so we were talking, and I was saying, the problem with all of that is that there's not a religion in the world that thinks that way. I Christianity doesn't, Judaism doesn't, Islam doesn't, Hinduism doesn't, Buddhism doesn't, every major religion in the world believes they are the only way to God or their gods or whatever they call you know, enlightenment, whatever it is. They all believe that. They may let other people from other religions be a part of it as long as you conform to whatever. So Buddhism has no problem with people being Christians as long as you conform to certain things about Buddhism that makes you Buddhist, otherwise you're not Buddhist. They all think that way. And the only people who actually ever think that way are people who have no respect for or no understanding of religion. And by Christianity, I don't like to think of Christianity as a religion, but for this purpose, I will. And what happens, it's almost always Christians who think this, or people who grew up in a Christian church who are connected to Western civilization thinks this, is they take Christian terms like loving God and they change the definition of God and they change, or at least of love, and then they bring it back to us and say, well, you know, you're not being very loving like the New Testament teaches. Whatever. They have taken a form of godliness that lacks true morality and true heart and true faith. They have taken something just like it says here, and they put all their arrogance in it and all their boastfulness and all those other words, and they lack the power. You know, the love of God is a powerful thing, so powerful, in fact, that the love of God sent Jesus to die on a cross for us. So powerful, in fact, that after Jesus took all of our sins upon him and paid for our sins and was dead, God's love is so powerful, and he raised Jesus back to life. Saying everybody who's religious gets into heaven has no power whatsoever. and has no love whatsoever. Because it's not possible whatsoever. There are so many things and so many people that look religious and so you turn on the TV and you see all the televangelists and all the people out there and everything sounds so good because everything is so religious faith hope believe everything and it has no power because it doesn't focus on Jesus. It's exactly what Paul warns us of. And as a church, we have to point that out. And we do a pretty good job as Christians and churches pointing out all the sin of the non-Christian world. We have to point that out, you know, what's going on in the culture and society and those people over there and those people over there and those people over there. <laughs> but we really don't like pointing it out when it's within the realm of the Christian faith. And probably the one place where we should point it out the most is within the realm of the Christian faith. That church down the street? Nah. That church over there, I'm not being specific. <laughs> that one, but I'm not that one, okay? I'm not pointing to the assembly of God, they're good folk. You know, they're not as good as us, but they're good folk. But what I mean is we've gotta be able to tell people, no, stay away from that. Someone comes up to me and says, I think our family's gonna to go to this church over here, what do you think? Yeah, fine. If they say, we're going to go to that church over there, I say, don't go there. If you're going to leave here, don't go there, go there. Because I don't want them going someplace that's false. I want them going someplace where truth is taught, not as well as here, but taught nonetheless. That's what I want for them. That's our task. We have to take that seriously. Verse 6, from among (laughs) them. I want to skip Verse six, for among them are those false teachers who slip into houses and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. All right, it's not not women that's the issue. It's people who are weak. Paul is speaking not in general terms. He is being very, very specific. The problem at Ephesus in the year 64 A.D., is that the false teachers are going to the homes of women who came from Gentile backgrounds, who know nothing from the Judeo-Christian worldview perspective, who has just come to Christ, whose husbands are probably still pagans, whose minds are wide open, and they're going to them and teaching them things that are false in leading them astray. It's why in 1 Timothy, Paul says, I don't let women teach. That can't be a blanket endorsement. If so, First Baptist Church is in trouble because one of our Sunday school classes that's still called Sunday school has a really good teacher who's a woman who I think is probably... If if I ever was going to have women deacons, would be one of the four or five women at the top of the list. I never will because I'm a Southern Baptist and I'm gonna let my doctrine and theological beliefs keep me from what probably is okay according to scripture. And I can't say that because I'll get kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention just like Saddleback and Rick Warren. I don't wanna do that. But one of, the point is, that was the issue. It was a specific problem. And they were led on by their sins. They may have, may have come from a background of immorality or whatever. And they were always learning and never able to come to knowledge of truth. They, and and they, they just kept being led astray. Paul is pointing out, that's what the false teachers do. Here's what false teachers do. If they don't affect me, they're probably not going to affect many of you. But new believers, vulnerable, believer, vulnerable believers, they affect them. We have a lot of little people come to our church who are unchurched. It means they come from a non church background. They are under-churched. That means wherever they went, they were taught poorly or they didn't go very often. Or they came from a place. What's the word you use? De-churched. No. No. Un- unchurched, under-churched. What's the third term? I think I would know this. I'm the senior pastor. Mike, what is it? Unchurched, under-churched. D church. Do I say D church? Yeah, they left church. That's what it was. They left church. I have so many sayings. I can't remember them. You know, when you hit 55, man, it's really tough for me right now. You know, <laughs> under church, unchurched, and D church. Anyway, I think that's it. And they come from backgrounds where the knowledge is limited, and they're vulnerable to false teaching. One of the things, you know, so we, we, we work very hard about that in, in, our, in our connect groups. We want people as much as possible. If they're not going to, if they don't have someone strong to teach, go to Right Now Media because we, we, have, we have confidence in what they teach. We've screened all of that out. Mm-hmm. We know it's good. My small group does that. You know, I will teach them for now, but we just came out of one uh, right now I'm a session and I'm gonna teach for a couple weeks and we're going to another. It's good stuff. We don't want you to be weighed down. That's that's the danger. And he gives this example of Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. That's not in the Old Testament, but uh, the magicians, the magicians of Pharaoh, when 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 Moses approached Pharaoh and doing magic, uh, in the old uh, in, in uh, some of the pseudepigraphal books and in church history. Uh, these two guys were named as the magicians. It's not it's not in the Old Testament anywhere, but Paul's quoting what they considered common knowledge. So let me just say this: you know, Paul's not quoting the Old Testament. He's taking an Old Testament incident and he's quoting an outside the Old Testament source that he gives validity. It's okay you know, when, when, you know, teaching and preaching to use illustrations or points from outside if it helps demonstrate the point. You don't preach the point. You don't preach from those books, but it's okay. Paul does it. He quotes poetry. He quotes pagan philosophers. He does all of that, okay? So he's doing that here. So these men also opposed truth. They were men of depraved mind. They were worthless or rejected in regard to the faith. He's saying the false teachers are like the magicians of Pharaoh. They were opposed to the truth. They were men of depravity, and absolutely worthless, rejected by God. So he's saying, Timothy, you got to point this out. You got to deal with it, man. That's your job, Timothy. To deal with it. That's our responsibility as a church. That's why, as pastor, I encourage you constantly read the scriptures. I tell you, be fluent in the New Testament. Be fluent in the Gospels. Be fluent in Jesus. You need to be able to filter out. Listen, you don't have to have degree. If you understand, the, if you read the New Testament and you understand it, you can filter out false teaching. You're, you're, you can do all that. But if, not if you don't read the scriptures. Not if you don't study Jesus. I love this last part. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be obvious to all, just also as Janus and Jambres. They won't make much progress, he says. Eventually, comes to an end. So I read a lot of stuff from the early church period and in the the Middle Eastern times, I mean the Middle Ages times, the Reformation and all that. What I find amazing is the orthodox core things we teach today is the same thing they taught after the apostles died. Irenaeus, Ignatius, all those guys. And then you go on to the other church fathers as they begin uh, to pop up. And you have August, Augustine, and you have Chrysostom, and you have all those guys and all the battles they fought. And they fought over false teaching. And if if you go read the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, I know Baptists don't like creeds. And there's a few minor things you may not like. But I read those, and I'm like, yeah, that's pretty solid. I pretty much agree with that. Because that's pretty much what we agree. It's amazing that all the false teachings we've always faced have always died. They've always lost. They always come back up. But the truth always wins, as long as the people who are followers of Christ, read, preach, and teach the truth, and are willing to say something's not true. Listen, I'm not going to argue with someone over whether or not for communion they take wine or grape juice. We're going to do grape juice with badness. That's what we're going to do. I'm not going to argue with them over that. But I will argue with them if they teach that grace is taught through the dispensing of the elements. That I'll say no. The reason that I don't believe in having communion with other denominations, if they're not Baptist or evangelicals, because they believe that communion somehow is connected to receiving or dispensing or an object of grace, and we don't. And so I have nothing to do with that. I don't care if they agree to drink grape juice all day long. It's just not going to do it because what they believe is wrong. Mm-hmm. So we need to understand what matters and what doesn't matter. The reason... We don't accept baptizing infants as legitimate. It's because they believe that baptism saves them. And it doesn't. We're not going to do that. We're going to wait till you're a believer. We're going to put you all the way under, bring you all the way back out. We're going to immerse you. We have to understand what matters in life. So, with that, part of the false teaching we end, we'll pick back up next week in Verse 10. And so we'll see you.